And this feed water intake makes me feel like we're East River. It's good when I can walk outside, see hills around me, remind me where we're actually at. My name's Evan, guys. I'm the pastor down here, if we don't know each other. Before we hop into the Word, I just want to let you know a little bit about where our community is currently at. So we're at the end of a six-month financial period, right? It starts in July, ends the end of December, January, whatever. Um, and right now, we are fully self-sufficient as a campus, right? We are 43% higher in giving this round than we were last year. It's incredible. We are in moving into a spot where God can do more and more through us, not only with the Sunday morning gatherings, but out of that, we can then figure out and pray, all right, what do we want to do with the extra money that we have coming in? Also, we have a building fund that we set up. It's pretty obvious that we need a new building, right? It's at $28,000 right now. Did you hear that? $28,000 have been put into the building fund in the last month. It's incredible. Right? We have a team that's meeting every other week or so, kind of figuring out. We're putting together a plan for what type of building we need. We're also looking around town for that type of building. Um, in two weeks, we're going to have a family-style gathering. Anybody that wants to hear more about like the financial setup, the budget, as well as the search for the new team or search for the new building, just hang out um, in two weeks after the service. Uh, you guys have heard me say this over and over. We are the church. And what we see happening right now is God moving within us for some reason. There's purpose behind all this. All right. I need to pray. You guys may think we pray a lot here. It's true. It's because we need God more than anything else. God, right now I ask that you would just take a hold of my mind, my tongue, my emotions, that you would simply use me as a vessel for your word. Nothing else. Strip my selfishness, my pride. Allow it to be simply you and your spirit communicating your truth. Satan, be gone from here in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So one of my favorite subjects has always been history. The study of people and events fascinates me. You know, examining the way that real people, just like you and me, live through crazy things, like when the pilgrims sailed to America, or the Civil War, or the Great Depression, or World War II. You know, someday soon, COVID will be history, and people will look at the ways that the coronavirus affected our lives. By doing this, by looking at the events throughout human history, we can gain better understanding and insight into the universal nature of life. Similar things that everyone throughout all of time have experienced, regardless in which millennia or culture they lived. Things like hardship that either crush a person or through which they can rise up and conquer. By seeing the common elements that existed during Alexander the Great's day, during the Dark Ages in the 21st century America, we can begin to learn timeless truths that can be directly applied to our lives today. Truths such as character traits that elevate those and those character traits that cause others to crumble. The consequences, both good and bad, that come from our different choices. The reality of evil, as well as the reality of God in this world. Over the next 14 weeks, we'll be studying the historical account of the birth of the nation of Israel. The way that they were rescued as a gigantic collection of slaves from the clutches of the Egyptian empire and brought into the Sinai Desert in order to form a legitimate nation. 
They were transformed from a beraggled assortment of ragamuffins to a structured society governed by laws and yearly ceremonies. Out of this, they eventually became established as one of the richest and prosperous nations during their time. Such an important filter to keep in place while we do this study is that we are looking at a factual historical account. You're going to hear me say this over and over the next 25 minutes. Think about back in history class. You learned about men like Alexander the Great, Caesar Augustus, and Attila Hun. People, real people, whose stories were recorded and passed down throughout the generations. The Israelites and their exodus and then eventually their conquering the promised land are the exact same thing. Real people and real events that were recorded and whose story was preserved throughout the generations. They are not a fictional tale made up to create a religion. Rather, they are historical accounts of real events that took place around 1500 BC, out of which a nation was created and a very real God was shown to the world. You know, as we study through these events, please try to keep this filter in place. What we are reading about and thinking through actually happened. By keeping this in mind, it should naturally bring this question to mind. We'll even put it up on the board so that way you can see it. If this really happened, how should this be influencing the way that I live? Right, that's the power of studying history. It gives us things to reflect upon that can be applied directly to us here and now. This morning, we're going to look at three different historical accounts. The Exodus, Jesus, and many of your stories. They all prove the exact same thing about God, that he is real, that he is all-powerful, and that he has compassion for the ones that he created that are lost. All right, so with our filter in place, the fact that this is true, Let's look at the past. Now, I imagine most of you know the Exodus story. Whether you are picturing Veggie Tales, Christian Bale, or Charleston Heston, this event has been brought to life in multiple ways over the past few generations. To make th sure that we are thinking through and studying fact, not Hollywood spin, let's do a quick flyover through one of the most fascinating and stunning years in all of human history. Now, the book of Genesis ends with Joseph as second in command over Egypt. From this position, he brings in his father and 11 brothers and gives them one of the best pieces of land in Egypt. It's called Goshen. Let me show you the map. Again, a real place. There's Cairo right below the arrow, Mediterranean Sea above it. From this place, their family grows like face mask sales during a pandemic. Now let's get into the Bible and start reading the story. So we're going to be in the book of Exodus. Exodus 1, verse 7. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew ex exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Unfortunately, due to the reality of evil in this world, things turned from good to really bad. Let's keep reading verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom, and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became 
ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field of labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed upon them. And this is a place that no one would ever want to be, right? It makes me think of the African Americans in the southern United States in the 17, 18, and 1900s. Just because the Israelites were exceedingly strong and prosperous doesn't mean that the power of the wicked couldn't overtake them and keep them in bondage. But fortunately, this story doesn't stop here like it has so many other times. Let's look at chapter 2. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. Under the weight of oppression, the Israelites remembered the God of their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they cry out to him for help. And he heard them, and he took notice of their suffering. This is a very easy few verses to skip over, but it speaks volumes of who God is. As we'll see in the chapters that follow, the one whom they cry out to is all-powerful, able to overthrow the most powerful nation in the world in a matter of weeks or months. This being, who has total control over every form of nature, heard the cries of a suppressed and helpless people who brought nothing to the table other than their weakness and a desire for his help. Out of his compassion, out of his intense love for and desire to rescue the weak, he snatches them out of the claws of bondage and turns them once again into a strong and prosperous nation. Let's quickly fly over how God does this. Now, first, he raises up a deliverer, someone who believes in and trusts God enough to stand before the most powerful ruler in the world, Pharaoh. Through Moses, God gives Pharaoh 10 different options to release the Israelites. Each time Pharaoh rejects Moses' request, God brings a plague. From turning water to blood, to swarms of insects, to disease, to natural disasters such as hail or complete darkness, to the death of every firstborn in the land. Through this, God shows his power over nature and humanity. Each time before he brings punishment, he gives Pharaoh a chance to avoid the pain and hardship that is coming. That's so often overlooked, the way that God interacts with Pharaoh. But the way that he does shows us so much about who he is. The fact that he extends his mercy to the one who, directly, who is directly harming his people. This means that no one can sin their way out of God's love. No matter what a person may do, God always gives that person an option to turn back to him. As we all know, the death of Pharaoh's oldest son is finally enough for him to release the Israelites from slavery. Moments after the angel of death sweeps through Egypt, the Israelites pack up and begin their journey towards freedom, led and protected by God. During the day, he was a pillar of cloud. At night, he was a pillar of fire. I love this. It shows that God doesn't just swoop in and bring freedom. He also then remains with those he freed in order to guide them into the life that he has for them. Now, instead of bringing the Israelites straight into the land of Canaan, he leads them south for two reasons. And these are all biblical notions that I'm getting. One, they weren't ready to battle the, to battle the Philistines in the north. 
God knew that they needed to be prepared before taking the promised land. The second thing, he, he, God needed to show his total power over Pharaoh so that way the Israelites would be fully set free. Again, this shows us more about God, how much he cares about his people, enough to be a part of their everyday lives and to fully set them free from their oppressors. Think about that, full freedom. Now, in order for Pharaoh and his army to no longer pursue the Israelites, God leads his people to the shores of the Red Sea. We pick up Exodus 14. And I love this narrative. It's just like reading a story to my kids. Not that I see you guys like that at all. All right, chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pi Haharoth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of the Baal Zephon. You shall camp opposite it by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, so that I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the minds of Pharaoh and his officials were changed toward the people, and they said, what have we done? Letting Israel leave our service? Now what happens next is one of the most incredible moments in all of human history. The God who created the universe wipes out Pharaoh and his army in one of the most epic ways imaginable, the parting of the Red Sea. Let's jump to verse 19. The angel, of the, Lord, the angel of God, who was going before the Israelites, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with the darkness, and it lit up the night. One did not come near all, the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into, a dry, into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and clouds, looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and their chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn, the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The water returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers, the entire army of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw that the, the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Now I'm sure you've heard this before, right? But remember our filter. This actually happened. This is not a fairy tale, but reality. If you wouldn't mind showing the map, kind of the idea of where 
people project that they had traveled. Again, a real place, real people moving through. Now, for those of you that are at all like me, let me give you some proof. Archaeologists have found various structures that show that the Israelites were in Egypt during Pharaoh Ramsey II, which is the same time period as Moses. Also, literary experts have found evidence within the Bible and non-biblical texts that support the reality of the Exodus. A Harvard grad and professor of Jewish studies at the University of Georgia said, and I quote, real evidence exists that the Exodus is historical, with text and archaeology mutually supporting one another. What fascinates, fascinates me even more is the way that hydrodynamics and topography have shown a way that the parting of the Red Sea may have happened. In verse 21, we read about Moses stretching out his hand and God sending a strong east wind all night. Right? That's when the cloud was between the Egyptians and the Israelites because something had to take place over a long amount of time. Scientists have examined the topography. That's like the depth of the ocean, the sea, the rivers of different parts of the Suez Canal and the eastern Nile Delta as part of the Red Sea. Both, and then they tested what would happen if a strong wind would blow throughout the night. They found, and I quote, that under a uniform 28 meters per second, or 62 miles an hour, an easterly wind coming, from a, coming upon a reconstructed model basin, so they created a little model that demonstrated the exact layout, they found that the ocean model produces an, an area expo of exposed mud flats where the river mouth opens into the lake. This land bridge is three to four kilometers long and five kilometers wide, and it remains open for four hours, end quote. Right? That's enough time for the nation of Israel to walk across on dry land. Now, when the water comes back in, Pharaoh and his army with their chariots would have been in a hard spot due to all the armor that they are wearing. Try swimming with a lead vest. Right? For me, I love this because it shows the way that God could have used natural elements that were already in place to accomplish his will of freeing his people. Not only does God work at times through the bizarre and unexplainable, he also uses common things in our world to bring about monumental changes. Now, once free from Pharaoh, God leads the freshly redeemed Israelites into the Sinai Desert to form a relationship. We're going to look at this next week and the weeks to come, what that looks like. Like any other event in history, these several months, weeks or months during which an all-powerful being stepped into a broken and enslaved nation show us a lot. But I want to highlight a few. One, that God is real. How else could anything of this magnitude have happened? If you wouldn't mind putting that slide up, Carrie. Number two, that God is compassionate. His motivation for stepping in and his patience in dealing with Pharaoh shows God's tender and very real love for the people that he created. Number three, we all have a choice whether or not we experience this compassion. The reason that God moved was because he was asked. The reason that God dismantled Pharaoh and his nation was because Pharaoh refused to put God into his proper place and allow his will to be done. If he had let Moses and his people go, he would have avoided all of the hardships that followed. God is real. God is compassionate, and we have a choice whether or not we want to experience this God. You know what else shows this? 
two other historical events, Jesus and many of our stories. Let's start with Jesus. Don't worry, we're going to do a real quick flyover of his entire life. Now, according to most historically verifiable, excuse me, according to the most historically verifiable ancient biographies, if you want proof for that, come and talk to me. Right? According to the most historically verifiable ancient biographies written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what is also known as the Gospels, Jesus is God incarnate. That means that Jesus is God himself, the almighty maker of heaven and earth who came into a broken and lost world. He did this in order to set us free from our bondage to sin and death. Just like the Israelites, mankind had been brutally enslaved by a cruel master our natural, even innate, rebellious tendencies against our Creator. Instead of seeing the value of looking up to God for guidance on how we should live, we instead continually choose to trust our own limited and faulty views of what we see as right. With our own selfishness as our master, we are chained to the consequences of our own poor choices, which range from discontentment to broken relationships to addiction the biggest consequence being us being separated from the perfect and eternal creator of everything once we die. Out of God's compassion for the people that he had created, he became one of us and lived among us. I love the way the message puts it in John 1.14. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw, the glory with, we saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. During his 33 years on earth, Jesus brought goodness to so many different people's lives. He healed the sick. He brought worth and value to the socially discarded. He brought purpose to those who had been disenchanted by the ways of the world, like money, success, sex, self-righteousness. He also brought hope to those whose lives were careening out of control based on their own stupid choices. And if you take time to read through the Gospels, you will see Jesus' power over sickness, over crowds, over the elite authorities, even over nature itself. At the end of his life on earth, Jesus willingly lays down his life as a broken sacrifice for the creation that he came to save. Instead of allowing us to experience the natural cause and effect of our own selfishness, Remember, total separation from our perfect creator. He bears the weight of our rebellion and is completely cut off from his father. My father, my father, why have you forsaken me? But it doesn't stop there. Because he is God, because he is all-powerful, he was able to do something that no one ever has done in all of human history. He was able to conquer the grave. Two and a half days after he was killed, Jesus rose from the grave. In the same way that the Israelites walked out of the Red Sea, untouched by Pharaoh and free from his plan to utterly destroy them, Jesus marched out of the pit of hell with total freedom in his hands, which he will freely give to anyone who cries out to him. Now, I know you've heard this before, but please see it through the same filter that we review in the Exodus historical fact. Jesus rising from the dead wasn't a story that was made up so that the followers of Jesus could continue to grow in their pursuit of power. Rather, it is verifiable reality. I love the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. 
For I handed on to you as of first importance what I had in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to someone untimely born, he appeared also to me. That means that after being brutally killed and buried, Jesus showed his resurrected self to hundreds and hundreds of people. Even if you see this as a lie, why didn't the Pharisees then simply produce a body? They were the major opponents of Jesus and the movement that he was bringing with him. If they wanted to instantly squelch all that the disciples were up to, all they had to do was show Jesus' rotting corpse. But they never did because they never could because Jesus had conquered the grave. Like I mentioned with the Exodus, Jesus is historical proof that God is real that God is compassionate, and that we have a choice whether or not we want to experience this God. You know, the last proof that I want to look at this morning is stories from our own lives. I'm talking to you now. By raise of hands, how many of your lives have been made better because you reached out to God? For you online too, do it in your own rooms. Look at this. How many of you were saved from your own destructive foolishness because God stepped into your life in some form. Man, I want to hear all of your stories. They are historical proof that God is real, compassionate, and that we have a choice. Unless you are lying, what you have experienced is undeniable evidence that we were created by an all-powerful and merciful being that longs to step into our bondage and set us free so that way we can live the best lives possible. And last year, I tried really hard to get you guys to share your stories. Anybody remember that? Right? Three to five minute video, so simple. I asked week after week for months, and I only got four or five of you to do it. But there are dozens more stories in this room and in this community that proclaim God's reality and his goodness. And according to the Bible, it is your call to share your experiences with God to those around you. One of my goals this year is to make this happen. Prepare yourself for the nagging faucet approach. <laughs> week after week, you'll hear drip, drip, drip. Me challenging you to sit down in front of a camera for just a few minutes to share one of your stories. It is so simple, but it can be so powerful. If this is already something you want to do, come and talk to me. Because I have the mic right now, I'll start it off with one of mine. Ten years ago, when I was 28, my wife and I were living in Hawaii been married for about five years. At this point in my life, I had been chained to my addiction of smoking weed for 13 years. Our marriage was only held together by my wife's steadfast love and commitment. Even though I knew that getting high was ruining my life, I couldn't set myself free. That's when God stepped into my life in profound and undeniable ways. By speaking directly to me through my own thoughts, through my wife, even through a complete stranger, God made it clear to me that it was time to stop living as a slave. You know, over a six-month period, I fought, I fought the best I could to overcome the, my oppressive desire to get high. Sometimes I'd win, often I'd lose. 
But because my mediocre approach to living wasn't why God created me, he continued to give me opportunities to be set fully free. You know, every September, our church in Hawaii would have what they called 21 days of prayer and fasting, when different people from the church would get together and prayerfully decide on some form of fasting or prayer that they would do over a three-week period. You know, I still remember that feeling that God gave me, telling me that this was for me. This was my time to make him my priority. So I committed to pray and fast for three weeks in hopes that I would be released from my inescapable bondage. Over those 21 days, I fasted intermittently, and I gathered with others to pray most mornings. It really doesn't matter what I did or how I did it. But in hindsight, I recognize that this was my Red Sea crossing. It required faith, the choice to trust God to do what only he could do, and my willingness to walk forward step after step, day after day. At the end of those three weeks, I stepped onto the shores of a new life, a free man, never again struggling with my addiction because God had utterly destroyed it. Last 10 years, I haven't once had the mouth-watering tendency even when I'm around weed because God fully obliterated my enemy, my captor. Just like the Exodus story and Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, my story is historical proof that God is real, that he is compassionate, and that we have a choice whether or not we want to experience his compassion. This means that if you're in some form of slavery right now, all you have to do is cry out. God is waiting to hear your voice and to respond to you. Do it now. Don't waste your life. 